This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, we'll hear how upscale black mothers from Detroit who move their families to the white suburbs are met with a barrage of microaggressions. And black former prison inmates have a hard time finding employment or getting anybody to vouch for their trustworthiness. But first, in the last decade, Black Lives Matter grew from a hashtag to a movement. But the question still remains, whose lives and deaths matter enough to make the evening news. Colgate University sociology professor Alicia Simmons did a study of corporate media to find out how newspaper and TV newsrooms treat police killings of unarmed black people. In thinking about doing the overall exercise, everybody knows the name Mike Brown. Everybody knows the name Freddie Gray. And as we think about the process of newsworthiness, we know that it's shaped like a funnel. The news obviously can't report on every single issue and event in the world. Rather, people, humans, reporters, editors, they decide what is newsworthy and what is not. And so for me, the question became, well, I know that this happened to Mike Brown and Freddie Gray, Who else has this happened to? They clearly can't be the only ones. And what are the patterns that we can use to figure out who these people are? It's not random. There are systems that help reporters, journalists, editors make decisions. And so that was what really motivated me. Who else is out there? And why do we know these cases and not the cases, the stories of other people? The nature of the corporate news media, and those are the outlets that you studied, is that it's staffed mostly, overwhelmingly, by white people who bring not only the institutional history of the news organization, but the racial history of themselves and that organization. I think that that would be absolutely correct. As we think about the social construction of reality, who gets to write those stories? Yes, as we think about journalists in the United States, they are overwhelmingly white, they are male, they are overwhelmingly college educated. And so we're talking about a very particular group of people who get to make these decisions. And are black and brown people in those rooms? Certainly not in anything that approaches a proportionate distribution. Um, So you're absolutely right in terms of who is left in and out of the newsroom itself. Now you found that in 2014, that's the year when Mike Brown was shot down in Ferguson, Missouri. In 2014, Black deaths at the hands of police were top stories. Why was that? In thinking about making something a top story, 
in thinking about creating news, news in the United States is a money-making business, and that is not the model in all democracies. You can have more publicly funded news, or you can have more privately funded news. And the United States has the vast majority of news is privately funded. About 2% of the population engages with things like PBS or NPR, probably your program as well. And so in thinking about news, if it is a money-making business, you are drawn to stories that have drama and excitement. And in thinking about police shootings, right, those have drama and excitement. And then if you add in the racial layer, right, I mean, these aren't any old police killings. They are particular police killings. And so they have that kind of dramatic flair to them. And then once you get one... And so you can think about Eric Garner, and then you have Mike Brown soon after. They bubble up together in a particular kind of way. Um, So I think that they have the characteristics of any kind of great news story. I think being able to add on that extra racial layer. I think the fact that Obama was president as well kind of, again, bubbling that racial layer up to the top. And so it was a major news story for a while. It has not been a major news story as of late. Um, The story still exists, but we also have to think about what is available for news. And so these stories might currently be crowded out by all of the other newsworthy events that are going on in the world. Um, So the window for the ability to become news opens and closes to a certain extent as well. But much of the drama and excitement, at least the drama and excitement that is perceived by the mass audience, comes from the intervention from Black activists, from protesters. Absolutely. And as we think about the features that characterize these events, I find that newsworthy cases are more likely to happen in locations with a larger Black population And I speculate that it's because that larger Black population then mobilizes. As we think about the news sources that I studied, I looked at three newspapers and three television stations. And what I find is that you have to have protests in order to get on television. Why? Because protests look great. There are people holding signs, maybe the police come very dramatic. And so that ability for mobilization is key. One, for the visuals, and two, I'm working on this argument about injustice and how the news needs to be able to talk about these events as an injustice. Um, You know, if you get killed after running from the police for 50 miles, that doesn't sound like an injustice, although philosophically we can argue why the police are killing people, but that's a story for another day. So in thinking about uh, having to characterize an incident as an injustice, if people stand up and say, look, this man's spine was severed in a van. This is a problem. That gives the news a window. I'm thinking very much about windows. Gives the news a window to get in and grab onto that story. So protest matters, absolutely. Raising a voice up always matters. But as you mentioned, the question of whether police even have the right to be there and lord it over a community is almost never examined. Absolutely. And that's bringing me into thinking about the project that I'm currently working on. 
And so we have this idea that these things happen. Then the question becomes, all right, what is it that we talk about? And the degree to which we talk about racial inequality, the degree we talk about inequities in policing, are we talking about those issues or are we only focusing on, oh, there was a grand jury hearing or, oh, let me tell you about the officer and their family. So that's the next question that I absolutely want to answer. And thinking about it from a sociological perspective, those are the questions that need to be answered from my point of view. As we think about police use of force in general as a phenomenon, we know that that is more likely to happen in neighborhoods that are more black and brown, that are more economically impoverished. Police use of force is not randomly distributed. And so that is a key conversation that I want to have as an analyst. And I'm very curious to document the extent to which the news covers it and does not. Until the latest round of corporate downsizings, most major media, especially newspapers, had a police beat. That is, a reporter or several reporters who were assigned full-time to the police. And those reporters typically fraternized with the cops and identified very strongly with the police on the beat. Absolutely. I'm so glad that you brought up the police beat. Because again, as we think about where news comes from, news is not just handed down from the universe. It's created by people. And that relationship between the reporters and the police officers is key. The police love to give journalists information because journalists can help police work on investigations, right? Look at this mugshot. Have you seen this person? Journalists can make police look good. So the police are happy to be in the news and journalists are happy to be related to police because police give them action and adventure, stuff that sells. And so they have that mutually beneficial relationship that you mentioned. Um, I would argue, and this is something that I talk about in the paper, is that relationship can become adversarial. And that relationship becomes adversarial because journalists do see themselves as the fourth estate, as watchdogs on sources of power. And so there are moments where journalists are willing to turn on police, right, to turn their spotlight of scrutiny onto them. Um, I would argue that there's some kind of calculus. Am I willing to anger my source or is this a time where I should protect my source and let things go? I think the journalists have to absolutely engage in that kind of back and forth in their minds, to be sure. Um, and as we think about police and their willingness to divulge information, that's a key determinant of newsworthiness. If the police don't release the name of an officer, it depresses the ability for the news to talk about them. I, I can't ask anybody questions. I can't probe into their life history. And so police and their willingness to divulge information has profound implications for the news that can and cannot come out. You might recall that the prosecutor in the Mike Brown case held a press conference at night and let out a lot of information there. And many observers questioned the timing and the nature 
of that release because the timing and the nature of information releases has a lot of implications for newsworthiness cycles and for audience members as well. In terms of whose death is important and whose death is not, many of us have observed that, for example, in New York City, the death of an out-of-town white tourist will be part of the news fair on television and in the papers for days and may even be marked on its first anniversary. But people die silently unknown in Brooklyn and the Bronx, black people and brown people all the time. And I think that that brings us right back to our earlier discussion of one, the journalists themselves, what does my family look like, right? That draws your eye. And here, I don't want to say that journalists are running around with capital R racism. Of course not. We're talking about these implicit, subtle biases that if one is not careful, <laughs> will profoundly shape your worldview. So I think that's absolutely part of it. We have to think about the audience as being part of it as well. As we think about the news audience, the news audience has been shrinking. The people that are most likely to give money to the news, again, we're talking about this economic motive behind it. And we know that economics have been used to exploit black and brown people for all time. And so in thinking about this economic motive, people who are most likely to subscribe to the news are white people, older people, people with more money. And so you're catering to the implicit biases of the news as well. Um, We all know that beautiful white girls get more news coverage than beautiful brown girls do when they go missing. Economic forces, implicit bias forces, all of those things come together to create those inequities. And the media and the cops are not the only actors in devaluing black life. You write about coroners who don't have any classification for people who are killed by electroshock and, in fact, use the term excited delirium to describe victims of police-inflicted electroshock. I think this is one of the most exciting, unexpected, and important findings of my work. You know, as we think about electroshock injuries, people will say, well, why did the police shoot them with a gun? Why didn't they taser them? There are non-lethal ways to deal with people. And that's the incorrect framing. It's not non-lethal, it's less lethal. And that is a critical distinction, less lethal. And so people say, well, let's just go to these, you know, less lethal methods. Well, they're less lethal. And let's think about how we can describe the death that occurs. And so what I found is that coroners play this very important role. How did this death come about? And so you bring up this term, excited delirium, and it is a contested term. And the only places that excited delirium, a condition that's characterized by imperviousness to pain, high aggression, when Darren Wilson says that Mike Brown was hulking out in front of him, that's excited delirium. And so coroners will say, oh, this person died from this condition of excited delirium. And then there are other groups of coroners that say, you you made that up, which again, of course they did. We're people, we're making everything up every day. But other coroners say, you only apply that to when police electroshock people to death. 
that doesn't happen anywhere else. Maybe we should talk more about this. And so it's this contested way that we characterize death at the hands of police, lethal use of force. And so what I think is so important about my work is that I demonstrate people who die from electroshock injuries do not make the news. The best way to make the news is if you are shot or if you are choked. Like, that's easy to explain stuff. Electroshock, people have that hang-up. That can kill you. And then you've got, well, the coroner's report doesn't say that they died from electroshock. And so those forces come together to inhibit newsworthiness. And so I think this is a conversation that the public should be having about less lethal forms of force. And we can't have that conversation because it doesn't turn up in the news because of these regularized patterns of relying on coroners who are at odds right now. Excited delirium sounds like slavery time vocabulary, like back in the day when blacks were said to be afflicted with a peculiar disease that made them want to run away from the plantation. I find it to be reminiscent as well. Now, much of our understanding, even those of us who have been active in anti-police brutality and abuse movements, much of our information comes from the news media, including the report that was released about the time that Mike Brown was shot down from the Malcolm X grassroots movement, uh, which said that police kill a black person every 28 hours. So despite their historical hostility to black folks, the corporate media still play a great role in our understanding of what the police do. Absolutely. So from a sociological perspective, when we talk about the world, we say that people have a socially constructed reality. On the one hand, people have their direct personal experiences, which are incredibly powerful, but they're also incredibly limited. On the other hand, we have vicarious experiences. And vicarious experiences are the information that we get from others. It is less powerful, but it is the vast majority of what we know. You and I right here, we're talking about slavery. We weren't there, but we know it to be true from all of these sources of media that have been passed down and passed down and passed down. Um, the only reason that I know what's going on in Washington, D.C. is because I read about it and because I see it on the news. And so the news is fundamental in shaping what we can and cannot know. And I think that's so critical, right? What we can and cannot know. Right now, I argue that we cannot know about electroshock deaths because it's not being publicized. And so absolutely, as we think about how people can understand and interpret the world, what they can see as the empirical facts, the types of beliefs that they derive, it's all media-driven. And I'm thinking about the news sources that I selected. I focused on three national newspapers that really have very wide audience reach and that really drive the national conversation. Um, same thing with the television newscasts that I picked, right? They are the largest players out there. 
in thinking about my future research, I'm actually working on looking at cable television news, um, looking at right the same cases, breaking it down in the same types of categories, but seeing the extent to which we see differences across Fox, MSNBC, and CNN. In your study, did you see any evidence that the presence of black reporters in the newsroom, television, or newspapers had any effect on the institution's coverage and the character of the coverage of police killings of black people? I think that is an excellent question, and it is not something that I had the opportunity to look at in my work. I think a future area for study is absolutely widening this open to thinking about the black press. Does the black press report on more cases than the mainstream national press does? And to what extent do they talk about the cases in similar or different ways? I think that would be an excellent future research topic. Well, the black press largely has gone extinct You know, in thinking about the decline of the black press, as we think about democracy, you know, scholars who theorize about presses and democracies, you need a vibrant, diverse press from diverse newsmakers, from diverse ideological perspectives. Um, We talk about this idea of political parallelism, and people think it's dirty. Oh, Fox News and MSNBC. Well, if they exist in a full and rich ecosystem, then that's fine. And so something that I always impart to my students is if you care about the news, you must pay for it. You must open your pocket Um, because in our commercial system, that's the only way that we'll be able to get quality journalism. And so to everyone that's listening, open your pocket. Uh, Open the pocket to the newsmakers that you believe in. Thinking about how I start the paper, there is this twin contradiction. On the one hand, we know that the police have always focused on black and brown people for enhanced scrutiny. Going back to the beginning, these people are dangerous. We have to keep an eye on them. And so, and I'm drawing on the work of Randall Kennedy here from Harvard Law School. So Kennedy says, on the one hand, we have always turned a harsher eye to black folk. But at the other hand, police extend less protection to black folk. We know that there are neighborhoods that the police don't come to. We know that police have turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to communities of color's police for help. And so it's this twin tension. I'm going to over-police you, but I'm going to under-protect you. And I think that these cases of police killing unarmed black folks, and I really do underline unarmed, because again, we can have a philosophical debate about are there instances where police should ever be using lethal force or using lethal force against unarmed people. There are many debates to be had. But I just, I think that these instances of police killing unarmed black folks It just exemplifies those two forces in tension. That was Alicia Simmons speaking from Colgate University in upstate New York. The great black activist and sociologist W.E.B. Du Bois said black life takes place behind a veil that serves as both a cloak and a shield against white attack. Professor Chassidy Bailey Fahouri at Grand Valley State University in Michigan did a study of black families 
that moved from Detroit to the mostly white suburbs in search of better schools for their kids, but were met with a barrage of microaggressions by teachers and other parents. Professor Fahuri titled her study, State of the Art, Living Within the Veil. As these mothers were in these predominantly white schools and communities that they have now moved to, as they were in the schools navigating the school systems and advocating for their daughters, they did come across various instances of racial microaggressions. Um, One example happened with one of the mothers in the study spoke about how in a classroom that her daughter was in, the students were talking about basically their origin stories, their family origin stories, where families had come from. And the young girl had come from Detroit before moving to the suburban community. And as she was talking about Detroit, the teacher went on to say, well, you know, Detroit's not a very safe place. And the daughter was really taken aback by hearing her teacher saying that because her experience in the city of Detroit at, when they lived there and at grandmother's house and everything had been one of fun and safety. And she shared this not with her mother, but with one of her aunts who then went on to tell her mother about this. And that this stereotype that the teacher shared with the students in the classroom really just harkens to this example of a description of criminal status, this idea that Detroit is full of deviance and criminality, and it's not safe to go into. And so the mother had to talk with her daughter then about that particular stereotype and combating against that. Others were very clear. There were some school closings that were going to take place in this suburban community, And this mother was really advocating for not closing the school. She was very vocal. There was a coalition of folks who were coming around and trying to prevent the school from closing. And while the local newspaper covered the story and actually put this African-American mother and her daughter on the front page of the newspaper, and she received so much vitriolic, the kinds of comments that she was receiving from folks in the community about her being the face of this school closing. And folks in particular, one of the school board members, and she were having a conversation. And the woman got really frightened when the mother went to raise her voice a little bit as she was trying to make the point of why she was involved in this, trying to prevent the schools from closing and serving all the children in the community. And one of the board members became so frightened that she felt like the mother was going to attack her because she began to raise her voice and got passionate about what it was that she was fighting for. And so these assaults, micro assaults on these women as they're navigating through these systems and trying to support not only their own children, but all children, which is something that African-American mothers do, Black mothers do as part of this mother work that they're engaged in throughout communities across the United States. It's not only about protecting themselves and their children and the African-American community at large. It's also about working for the benefit of the global community. And here this Black mother was doing this, but she was being attacked because she was seen as being an interloper, that she shouldn't have been in the community in the first place, and that she should not be the face of this movement in this predominantly white 
community, but she soldiered on. She kept on because she knew how important her voice was as far as trying to deal with these school closures and combat them. How prepared were these mothers for these microaggressions, for the reaction of the white folks to this Black presence? I would think that they knew what they were getting into. I think there was some preparation in the sense of many of these Black women were in corporate America. And so they had experienced the kind of tokenism, the high visibility, hyper visibility, but at the same time being invisible, that kind of paradoxical piece, being surveilled, those kinds of things that they experienced in corporate America. But to some extent, I do believe that there were some mothers in their families who did not think that this extra labor or work, this intensive work that they were doing to support their daughters and keep them whole beings in these predominantly white school spaces. I don't think that they really understood the depth of the work that they would have to do. So in some sense, I think that they might have been caught off guard a bit and not necessarily thinking that the battles that they fight when they go into work into the corporate sphere every day are going to then be the same sorts of battles that they have to take up on behalf of their daughters and help them to navigate those spaces. Because in some instance, the idea of leaving the inner city, leaving the city of Detroit for these surrounding suburban communities and their school systems and these high-performing school systems, it's attractive. They have these high test scores and parents are thinking about the educational prospects for their students, but they're looking at the data in aggregate, right? It's everybody, here is the score that demonstrates that the schools are doing well. But then when you disaggregate the data and you look at what is happening for young Black boys and Black girls, then they're not faring as well as their white counterparts in these predominantly white schools because they're at the margins. They aren't centered. The school system isn't set up really for their success. And so on the one hand, the parents want what's best for their children, and they see these high-performing schools as being something that they should be able to take advantage of as they move into these communities, but at the same time not understanding that, no, when you dig deeper, our children aren't succeeding as well as their counterparts, and they are facing a whole host of other issues. So I think that mothers were a bit caught off guard about the depth of the work that they have to do. Central to your article is W.E.B. Du Bois's concept of the veil, which can be seen both as a psychological barrier and as a shield in terms of Black-white relations. That is correct. It comes back to W.E. Boyce is the reason why I was first interested in sociology back in high school and has followed me throughout my entire career because him being a great thinker and so much of American sociology owes a debt to the intellect and wisdom of W.E.B. And so here he gives us this concept, this construct of the veil, which conventionally folks understand it to be the color line. They're black folks, they're white folks, right? There is this line that you do not cross. But 
it's not just that, right? The veil is much deeper. It goes beyond just persons. And we're talking about the veil as the problem of power relations and the power relations between white and black. And that the veil is really a mechanism, a mechanism for protecting the black psyche, but also as a mechanism for sustaining racial oppression, that it has this dialectical nature to it, these opposing forces. And so what the veil construct allowed us to do, to use it as an analytical tool to analyze the experiences that these African-American mothers were having and putting that in the context of the veil, of Black folks living within the veil, white folks living without the veil. So Black folks living within the veil means that how Black folks are experiencing themselves within Black society, but also um, outside of Black society. And then, of course, white folks living without the veil, not having experienced the knowledge that African-Americans do have about their society, Black society, but also about white society. So it is this idea that if we are using the veil to understand race, racism and racial relations within a U.S. context, then it really, you can see the racial microaggressions and the ensuing racial battle fatigue that a lot of these mothers experience. It is, makes it so much more perceptible. And you can understand the way in which racial microaggressions and racial battle fatigue are related. And so we use these present day experiences of, of African-American mothers in these predominantly white schools as the feature to really kind of investigate more, to try to tie together a bit more the connection between racial microaggressions and racial battle fatigue. But this veil construct is more than just a literary device. He was an eloquent writer, but it's more than just a literary device. This really is a feature of U.S. society, and it is a mechanism for understanding how Black folks in the U.S. remain sane in the face of the terrorism, racism that they have faced over the centuries. And it also allows us to understand how it is that racial oppression still exists. There's a disconnect, of course, between white and black folks and our experiences in this country. And the veil lets us understand that black folks living within the veil they are able to take the knowledge that they have about what life is like within the veil and without the veil and try to navigate these complex systems and structures using this mechanism. Just demonstrates W.E.B. and how prescient he was. You've several times mentioned Black battle fatigue. Tell us about the symptoms. Racial battle fatigue is all about that as Black folks just live and breathe in U.S. society, that they experience physiological and psychological strain. And they dedicate a lot of energy to coping with racial microaggressions and racism. And so there are a whole host of symptoms that have been identified that can manifest themselves physiologically and psychologically. So tension headaches and backaches. 
elevated heartbeat, extreme fatigue, ulcers, and constant anxiety, inability to sleep, intrusive thoughts and images, hypervigilance, frustration, what is known as John Henryism, or this high effort coping with various stressors, anger and anger suppression, keeping quiet, silence, resentment. There are all sorts of rapid breathing and anticipation of, of racial conflict. So there are all of these sorts of symptoms that African-Americans can face as a result of racial battle fatigue. And these symptoms are debilitating, can be debilitating, but they are, again, can also be protective. So the racial battle fatigue is something that this is being tired of coming up against these constant assaults these constant racial microaggressions, the racism, the, the discrimination. I um, mean, it takes a physical toll on the body. And there are researchers who have identified how living under racial stress and duress for African-Americans has resulted in some anatomical changes. Like there is a researcher out of the University of Michigan by the name of Geronimus and she has developed this concept of the weathering theory on the body and how that artificially ages, particularly African-American women. That's been who she had been working with. Just living under constant stress and what that does to a person's body and to our emotional and psychological health. And so this is something that we see connected to these various other illnesses that are prevalent amongst the African-American community when it comes to hypertension, cardiovascular disease. These things are connected and associated with living under, again, racial stress and racism. So we see mothers demonstrating racial battle fatigue as a result of, again, trying to advocate for their daughters in these predominantly white schools. And when they come in, the racial microaggressions that they receive, and then how those begin to induce the racial battle fatigue that they experience. Well, not just mothers, but the kids too must experience a great deal of stress. Do you have any data on their battle fatigue? So I don't have any data on their battle fatigue, but yes, you are correct that, again, we see children, but yes, but trying to navigate these situations, that a feeling that something just happened doesn't feel right. Something's wrong with that. Something they may have experienced from their classmates or their teachers or other adults in their school or their community, that feeling of, did that, did that just happen? Did I hear what I just heard? Did that happen because I'm Black? Trying to figure these particular instances out to determine the best course of action. We know, again, children in these predominantly white school systems, code switching is something that they do where they're able to understand that different cultural contexts or different cultural settings have their own set of vernacular, of norms, of behaviors. And so knowing how to fluidly switch it up, 
being in my predominantly white school and understanding the white norms in that space, then going back to my black family, whether in the suburbs or my black family back in Detroit or my black family at our church, the church home back in Detroit, and being able to navigate those spaces with dexterity. So we know that children are taught to do this, particularly found in this research that it's fathers, it's the black fathers who are more so involved in teaching children the code switching. Mothers do it too, but fathers are much more involved in teaching the code switching. And so again, here becomes another skill or behavior that these young African-American children are learning to be successful in black society and outside of black society. But at the same time, the code switching is protective, but it also can be debilitating. And so that would be an example of the potential racial battle fatigue that these children are experiencing. So without a doubt, these young children are experiencing their own racial battle fatigue. And so we see this, the beginning of these things happening for young black kids in predominantly white schools as early as pre-K. And so what does that mean for a lifetime of battling these particular issues coming up against racism and discrimination in these contexts? So it starts at a young age. Yes, you're right. And so that would be a very important aspect to be able to follow some of these women and their children as these young girls age and be able to identify and collect data around their own racial battle fatigue that they are experiencing. Professor Chastity Bailey Fahuri at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. It is well known that ex-prison inmates have a hard time finding work, especially if they're Black. But sociology professor Sandra Susan Smith of the University of California at Berkeley has done a study that found even black folks that have been to prison are sometimes reluctant to vouch for other ex-offenders who are looking for a job. Let me share how I came to this research project. I have been studying networks and how they work in terms of helping other, helping folks to find jobs. So we take for granted that if you know someone who has information about a job who can influence the process on your behalf, they will do so just because they care about you or for whatever reasons they will do so. So what a lot of my research in the past has shown is that actually people are not all that willing to help folks, even ones that they love dearly to find work at their place, um, their place of employment, in part because they're very concerned about their own reputational effects, the effects of their own reputation on helping someone to get a job. And they're most concerned about that when it comes to people who might have work histories or maybe even personal histories that are somewhat troubling or problematic. And my research has shown in the past that that has been a bigger issue for low-income Blacks, especially those who live in really poor neighborhoods. So there's a serious concern about whether or not folks are trustworthy enough to, to use this information to get a job to act appropriately on the job. So I come to this question from that perspective. A lot of the research that's been done in this area has essentially assumed if folks who are leaving prisons just knew more people who could link them to jobs, they would have a better time of finding jobs. And this is in part because I think the assumption is if I have a relationship with an employer, 
I can convince that employer that this person, despite the criminal record, would be a good person to hire, right? If I have a good relationship with that employer and that employer trusts me, then the employer will also take my word that this person is worthy of receiving this job offer. So there's a way that having this personal connection can kind of reduce or diminish the effect of the criminal record because they'll vouch for you. They know you, they know the employer, they can make it happen. So if the formerly incarcerated had more of these kinds of connections, it would make a huge difference in terms of their ability to find work. And so that is supposed to kind of mediate this effect of the criminal record on finding jobs. It would soften employers up, up, if you will. But because of my prior research, I wondered to what extent that was true. And I happened to have a data set that would enable me to look at this issue closely. Is it the case that job holders in positions that might be attractive to the formerly incarcerated would be willing to help those in their networks who have a criminal record, may have recently been released from prison or jail. Would they be up for that? Would they be willing to do it? And if not, what would make it so that they would be unwilling to do it? So I was interested in those questions. Should we be taking for granted that access to these social networks would produce these really positive results that the literature seemed to suggest was the case. I was doubtful, and so it made it so that I wanted to check this out. So you found that the stigma of former incarceration is such that even friends and relatives of the former inmates are reluctant to vouch for them. That's exactly right. There are variations on rates depending on what groups you're talking about, but there are a lot of issues that people have with the formerly incarcerated. Generally speaking, the Americans, broadly defined, there's a fair amount of distrust that they have about folks who've been involved in the criminal justice system. Can we trust that these people can make the transition from the life? Because there's always an assumption that if you have a criminal record, you must be deeply embedded or engaged in a kind of informal and illegal economy in such a way that you would be reluctant to remove yourself from that. So would this person be willing to give up the life and really kind of commit to work in a formal wage economy? And so there are questions about the commitment that individuals might have to make that kind of change and to have that change be real and longstanding. And then there's also the concern that some people who have criminal records, the nature of the offenses themselves are indications about the person's character, right? So if you get arrested and convicted of particular kinds of crimes, what the thinking is, is that it says something specifically about you, about kind of unchanging nature of your character that they should be concerned about. So especially for some of the harsher offenses, if you get convicted of murder or rape or child molestation, Clearly, there's something about you that is a problem, and I would never help someone like you. But it also stretches to some of the less severe crimes. If you're someone who, for some of my respondents, if you're someone who has sold drugs, that would be a problem. If you're someone who has gotten caught up in a lot of petty crimes, that would be a problem because that would be indicative of something about your nature that is unchanging, and so they can't trust you because the nature of your crime indicates something about your own inherent nature, which would affect their willingness to assist. So the criminal record comes to stand in for a lot of different things and mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. To the extent that folks feel like there's not enough evidence that you have made the change or that you seriously want to change, or to the extent that they feel like the nature of the offense 
means something about your nature, it shapes whether or not they're going to be willing to help you to find work. So those two factors mattered a great deal with regards to my respondents' willingness to provide help when they were in positions to do so. So how does changing frames overcome these obstacles? It's not so much changing frames. It's about the way I think about these issues when I come into contact with someone who is in this situation, right? So if I come into a situation feeling in general that everyone deserves a second chance, regardless, everyone has the ability to change no matter what, and they deserve the opportunity to make that change, and I come into contact with someone who has recently been released from prison and is looking for a job, Having that frame in my mind shapes how I'm going to interact with that person. And so I'm going to be much more open because I believe everyone deserves a second chance. I'm going to be much more open to provide assistance if I have the opportunity to do so. But if I come into a situation thinking, well, you know, criminals, especially those who have particular offenses, they just don't deserve to get a second chance because there's something about their nature that makes them the way that they are. So I can't trust them. I wouldn't trust them at my place of employment. I wouldn't trust them with the people that I care about. That is going to shape how I interact with the person when I come into contact with them. So it's less about the change in frames matter. It's about what ways do I think about the formerly incarcerated in my mind and the possibility that they can change in this situation that will shape whether or not I'm willing to help. So when I talk about change frames, it's about the change is referencing the ability of that individual to change their situation in such a way that I feel like I can trust them with a job opportunity that I might be able to initiate for them. And so my way of thinking about this is that we all come into interactions with different ways of thinking about things. If you come into an interaction thinking that change is possible and likely and that everyone is deserving of it, it opens up all sorts of possibilities for the formerly incarcerated. And what I find in my research is that when individuals have had prior experiences with the formerly incarcerated and those are positive, they fully embrace this second chance frame. I'm willing to do this. I know people who are in my network, people that I often care about, maybe a number of people who've been in this situation and they were able to turn their lives around and they're doing much better now. Those folks fully embrace the second chance frame and when they're given an opportunity, they help. On the other hand, though, folks who might have in their networks people who have had criminal justice contact, and they might even know quite a few of them, and they're very close to them. If they have had negative experiences in the past, either helping folks to try to find work and not having it work out, or if they've noticed that those folks don't seem to be all that motivated about finding jobs, that they are much more likely to embrace a frame that wants evidence for. I need evidence that you are committed to changing your life, to leaving the life behind, and to embracing and being committed to work in the formal wage economy. So one's prior experiences sets one up for thinking about the situation in a particular way, such that when they come into contact with folks who've um, been formerly incarcerated and they might be in a position to help, those ways of thinking about it shape how it is, whether or not they help and how it is that they help. And so those are the kind of cultural frames I'm talking about. It's essentially how you think about it, a situation. What are the different ways you can think about it? And people's prior experiences set them up for thinking about things in a particular way that either opens up opportunities for helping or it shuts them down completely. 
Because of the pervasiveness of incarceration in black communities, most ex-inmates' social networks are comprised of people much like them. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. I mean, in my sample, at least, a high percentage of my black respondents, black job holders, had in their networks at least one person and someone they felt close to who had had contact with the criminal justice system. And for a number of them, they too had had some contact with the criminal justice system. So they both had personal experiences. I directly have had contact. And I know a number of people who have had contact. That alone did not make it so that people were willing to help. They had to have had prior experiences where they felt like these folks wanted to work. They took advantage of opportunities. I have all the belief in the world that people will take advantage of these second chances that they are given. And so I'm fully willing and able to engage in a process that will help those folks out. They just don't think about it again. But very similar kinds of people who may have had prior experiences with the criminal justice system themselves, they may have many friends and family members who've had contact with the criminal justice system. When they have had experiences in the past that were far more negative, People will ask for help, but they wouldn't follow up on the help that they were offered, they were given, or they did help and those folks performed badly on a job or maybe embarrassed them. Those kinds of experiences set them up so that for them, it took a lot more to provide help. They needed to see strong evidence that that formerly incarcerated person had really changed. What is this person doing to show me that they really want to work? I need to see that they're not engaging in any kind of activity that seems illegal or inappropriate. I also need to see a lot of effort that they're trying on their own to find work. It's not just about asking me for a job or if I have any information. I want to see that they're going out, they're submitting applications several times a day each week. I want to see some real evidence that they have turned their lives around so that there's a commitment to the formal wage economy. And if I don't see that, I'm not doing anything. And that is rooted in their own prior experiences with helping folks and having that help go nowhere or observing the behaviors, the job search behaviors of formerly incarcerated friends and family members and thinking that it it wasn't indicative of someone who seriously wanted a job. And so you're right, many, especially my Black respondents, many were connected to people, the friends and family members who've had contact with the criminal justice system. Many of them had contact themselves. But how they looked at that situation was highly contingent on the kind of quality of their experiences in the past in situations just like this. It shaped how they thought about it and how they operated with regards to folks that they knew. It's difficult to imagine how ex-inmates' social networks, their friends and their families and acquaintances, or even the Black community as a whole, could make much of an impact on this problem of re-employing ex-inmates, since Black folks don't control a large portion of jobs. It's true. I mean, workers in general, one could argue, don't control most of the jobs. But in some communities, the vast majority of people find work through networks, right? It's not just that you get information about the jobs. You have someone who will speak to the employer on your behalf, who will give you strategic advice about how to get that job. There are different ways that we as job holders can help folks in our networks to get work. And what prior research shows, in some ways disconnected from the question of racial inequality, is that whether or not one gets help and how that person helps 
makes a huge difference in terms of whether or not you get a hearing with the employer and whether or not that, that employer looks at you favorably. And so what my research finds is that even outside of the question about whether or not one has a criminal record, low-income Black folks, especially those from communities of concentrated disadvantage, are far less likely when they have information and can influence the hiring process, they're far less likely to do so. They're far less likely to give strategic advice. They're far less likely to speak to the employer on behalf of their job-seeking relation. And this is in part rooted in their fear or distrust about what that will do if that person comes on the job and doesn't behave in a way that they would find appropriate. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.